This episode is brought to you by the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. It's hard to have a friend who's a slow eater because when you finish your McChicken sandwich, watching them finish their McDouble cheeseburger and small fries can be excruciating until they notice you staring and offer up a few fries. That must be what friends are for. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. Get a McChicken sandwich, McDouble cheeseburger, four piece chicken McNuggets, or small fries for just a few bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any offer or combo meal. This episode is brought to you by HP Plus. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP Plus, and the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh? That is smart. HP Plus. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com/smart. Welcome to episode 124. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreon supporters. You make this podcast happen. Today on the podcast, we welcome Joseph Grillo from Garrison. You may also know him from Godfire's Man, I Hate Our Freedom, Instruction, or Gay for Johnny Depp. Joe and I disagree a ton in this episode, and it's awesome. He's wonderful with his words, albeit with a voice that's a little less than 100% due to some cancer. He is okay. Joe and I talk about the scene, how it all connects. You're up for some sparring and a very smart person, not me. You're going to love this episode, so I hope you enjoy. On a personal note, I lost my Uncle Paul this past week, and he was the first person to teach me the guitar and also implore me to learn about music and really, really dive into music career. So thank you, Uncle Paul, for that. You are the reason why I'm sitting here. This is episode 124 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with Joseph Grillo from Garrison. experience we are in the mecca of williamsburg too we sure are every time i get off the subway there's a new mural there's a new restaurant there's a new i am this is a little bit different than uh <laughs> i used to live 15 16 years ago i used to live on the corner of bedford north 7th from 199 uh some 2001 up until when my house burned down in 2012 so yeah i was in the middle of uh hipsville for a long time now it's now it's just yuppiesville it hasn't been hip for a long time yeah i feel like it's it's further out, and this is like, I feel like this is just another piece of Manhattan that just happens Absolutely. on the subway. Yeah, well, it started, the change, I mean, when I moved here, there was an article in the Times saying Williamsburg was dead. Uh, and, you know, there always was yeah. that, that sort of thing, but it wasn't really until 08 that, that you started to see the drastic change. And I thought it would go from Williamsburg, when it was, to, I thought it would go to the East Village for a while, but it went straight to Gramercy. Straight to like money. I mean, everybody lives here now. They have to justify the $3 million apartment they bought. So, uh, 
yeah, they, it's a completely different animal. And it was interesting because unlike certain areas, the change was uh, happened. Everybody moved here and bought the expensive places before the infrastructure existed, there, before yeah. the Apple Store and, the, and Whole Foods. Um, so there was this weird catch area for a while. I remember Dumbo being like there was like one organic yeah. store. Yeah. And everybody had to go there or you had to go further out or right. into Manhattan for anything. Yeah. So the dynamics, I mean, it's actually pretty fascinating the way city neighborhoods work. I don't begrudge it because it's just, metro, you know, it's a gigantic sprawling metropolis. It's always changing. Um, so, you know, my long lost memories are just mine. They're n- yeah. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> well, this is the podcast for memories. I will say uh, you are one of a handful of bands that my college band played with. Where did we play? North Carolina oh, at yeah. uh, what was Go it Studios. It was Go Studios with Code 7. Yep. And I have photos of you guys, like actual wow. film. Everybody, when you used to take photos, it would come in the – you could actually buy, get them at a store and it was paper. I have a bunch of that show. That's I got to find them. Please. Um, but I just uh, – that was uh, – so there's only a handful of bands. One when, of them was Garrison. That was when band. Code 7 had, had – uh, the heavy set singer, Big Dave. Yeah, Big Dave. So they had sort of the ethereal singer, the thin spider-looking kid, uh, and they had the, like the dude that was like bringing it. Yeah, yeah. I remember actually being really impressed with them because um, it was such it was very schizophrenic music. That was, wow. And that was yeah. That was the nineties. That was the nineties. And then you've DJed a couple times at our DJ nights. Yeah, not very well. But you were there before the boom. You were there in twenty twelve and twenty thirteen oh. before twenty fourteen happened, and now there's. DJ nights everywhere. Yes, so you were again ahead of the curve. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, being indie cred really doesn't pay the bills, but cool. It does not. <laughs> uh, Garrison started in Boston, right? Correct. Is that where you went to school? Uh, well, no, I'm from Worcester originally. Oh, right. So 45 minutes outside, um, and Garrison was a brainchild of myself and a gentleman named Ed McNamara, who a uh, childhood friend of mine, and we had sort of a competing. Uh, Epic bands. Like, I was in a band called Stricken for Catherine. He was in a band called uh, Iris. And we were all like, you know, had, we were influenced by Rodan and Slint. And we just wanted these mammothly long, marathon, 13 minute long songs. And so we were writing songs. And then, you know, we pretty much figured out quickly that uh, we, we've we'd turned that wheel. And so we decided, we said, if we ever did a band together, we'd, we'd make what we considered pop music together. And so Garrison was in our minds, pop music. So the, our bands were both disintegrating in the summer of 1998, and we got together and started writing music. I, was that high school? No, there was, it was, uh, I was done with college. Where, um, where, where'd you go? I went to the University of New Hampshire. And I'd spending a lot of time in Boston and Worcester. Then I moved to Boston in 97. And, uh, what were you doing? I was working odd jobs. I was working at the Big Burrito. If you remember that place in Alston, Massachusetts, which was everybody who worked there was uh, in a band. So it was me, Travis Shettle from Piebald worked there, Adam from Cave-In, wow. Greg from Doc Hopper, um, goes on and on and on. Everybody was a musician because the guy that ran it, Michael Rubin, was cool with people. And he was like, you know what? You go on tour for a month. You come back, you're still going to have a job. If you need a lot of money, tell me. I'll book you as many shifts as I can. But if you need to go out, you know, and so... It was a very, very uh, wonderful atmosphere for creative people. What, so everybody that worked there. Could you talk about Boston a little bit? We've had some bands on, but I think that time period 
was was a special kind of because Boston is this kind of like Philly where it's yeah. not as many eyeballs. You can sort of incubate a little bit more. Yeah. Versus here, where I think you kind of have to do it or get get up. Well, yeah, New York's kind of impossible because uh, in Boston at the time, uh, especially when you're younger, you could live with a couple other people. It was affordable. You could work 35, 40 hours a week at a at a burrito joint, <laughs> you know, um, or a coffee shop or an ice cream parlor, and make enough you know money to get by. And then you could also go on tour for a month, come home and just be like working an 80-hour week, pay your rent, and then get back to doing what you were doing. And there was an infrastructure there. Um, Kurt Ballou had just opened the first incarnation of God City, which was in his basement. What year was that? I think I want to say 97. He opened it because Garrison did our demo there in 98, and he recorded uh, Cavens Until Your Heart Stops There. He did, um, I think he did a piebald record there. Or at least he helped them out a lot. Um, he did Converge, When Forever Comes Crashing There, um, and countless demos. And, you know, and he, So he was down the street from Big Burrito, and whatever band was in you know, that he was touring, he'd send up to me. I'd give them copious amounts of free food. <laughs> the Austin Co-op was there. So they were having shows uh, in the there's back rooms, like maybe fit about 70, 80 people. So that's, you know, Cable would play, or uh, God... Um, who else played there? I mean, aside from Converging Cave and Piebald, all the local luminaries, um, I want to say I saw, uh, what was the name of that band? They were great. Uh, Hose God Cable played there, but it was known as Band from Long Island. It was Kevin Egan, his band, they were like very drive like Jay Hui. Who am I thinking of? I'm, I'm blanking on their name. That's okay. But they were wonderful. I saw them there. And that, so there was an infrastructure for it. So you had all the like jockey straight-edge bands, which were in my eyes, 10-yard fight, um, stuff that I didn't care for at all, but were lovely guys, and they were really industrious, very hardworking, and they were making the scene happen. And then you had this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, we'll call them the gutter punks or the fashion punks, which is the unseen, um, and that all, you know, the kids with the mohawks. Uh, I think Trouble was kind of in that... Um, and then you had the emo bands and the metal bands, which was like the Converge, the Cave-In, the Piebald. Um, Garrison was definitely part of that. And so we had that, and then we had in Worcester, we had The Space, which Ed McNamara was running. Uh, that was sort of his brainchild. And you had all the things going on. Shred, um, who ran Espo Records, had a job at WBCN. He did countless shows. Are you right, Espo Middle Records? East. Yeah. And um, Big Wheel was around the same time. Big Wheel was going on. That was Dickie Cummings and uh, Rama. They would put out Cast Iron Hike, Jejun, all those bands. Um, there was a great, great scene. I mean, to give you an idea of sort of the height of what was going on, I remember, I think it was Valentine's Weekend. Valentine's Weekend, we had a show. What year was this? This is, I think, 99. Um, so Garrison played with Piebald, Reach the Sky, Battery, The Shyness Clinic, and Bane at the WYMCA in Boston, in Cambridge, actually. Maybe 800 kids came out. The next night we played uh, in Worcester. It was Hot Water Music and Elliot. It was a punk rock prom. 700 kids came out. The next night we didn't play, but we went to 
the show was Sunday matinee, and it was, was really stretching the memory. I want to say it was the 914, the unseen, the trouble, somebody else. It might have been um. Might have been one of the first shows for uh, blanking on the name of that band too. The, they got signed. They were uh, it was Damien, it was Matt. They were on Revelation. They had a record. Oh, the Explosion. Explosion. Yeah. So one of their first shows, and that was nine hundred kids uh, at the church, and that was just one weekend. So you had this infrastructure yet. Not only the bands and the people recording and the zines, the people putting on, as you had kids, kids coming out. And um, so many colleges. Yeah, just so much stuff. Yeah. Which I is just, wonderful. I thought that was a cool thing. I Growing up in Vermont, you'd get Boston hardcore bands to come up or New York City ones, and you'd yeah. kind of hear, oh, this label this, we're doing this comp, we're doing... It seemed like... There was so much going on. Like I said earlier, there was there was a there, like you said with money, you could you could do it. Yeah, you could do it. <laughs> it, it and gas possible. was you know yeah. a dollar a gallon. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I don't know how kids do it now, yeah. uh, to be honest. But that, I guess from from uh, starting Garrison, I mean, were there other things that you and Ed sort of connected on band wise, or was just it was slim everything, and everything. Yeah, everything. I mean, he, we were very open, so we were really in touch with contemporaries. I mean, constantly sharing. Um, no Knife were a huge band for us. Um, and interestingly enough, the first tour we did was with Doc Hopper and No Knife. We did like five days with them. We played 242 up in Vermont. Um, that was 98. Uh, Dead Guy, Damnation AD. Um, Why did the hardcore kids and the emo bands hang out? I think I know, but what, why do you think they connected? Because the shows would be... Bane yeah. and other, you know, it'd be all over the place. I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but I think the Boston scene, it, it's like, like you said, at that store, you had everybody hanging out together. Well, when it's small enough, you all stick together. Um, you know, sort of a, one of the byproducts of Nirvana, getting big to back it up a little bit, and alternative, alternative music becoming huge, is people started to <clears throat> subscene because before that, you could be into a band like The Cure, which we're talking about a band selling out Madison Square Garden. They're not a small band by any stretch, but they weren't really on the radio too much. And so you could claim them as your own. They could be part of your identity. And so, you know, you would, before Nirvana, you would see, uh, you know, somebody with a Smith shirt or a Ministry shirt or a Jane's Addiction shirt. And even though those bands sound nothing like each other, you would all be on the same page. And this is why Perry Farrell was able to do Lollapalooza. You know, really drastically different bands, but they all weren't Paul Abdul. They all weren't CNC Music Factory. Um, and despite the takeover of Nirvana in the early 90s, a lot of that music was still, that, you know, mindless pop was still on the radio. So what happened is in the mid-90s, you could still, you know, be a punk band or a emo band or a hardcore band and it was all still considered left to the dial for lack of a better term um, and so it all made sense it was when that stuff began, began to get signed and bigger and bigger and bigger that you saw people really subdivide so right around the time of 2000s early oddies when your Thursdays and your My Chemical Romance and your Converge and your this, then people said, I'm only into vegan straight-edge hardcore. I'm only into, you know, emo pop. I'm only into... Because you kids want something to identify with and subscribe to. 
And I understand that. And you also don't want to be into whatever your older brother was into. So you have to latch on to something. I'm only into Taking Back Sunday, you know, and that whole thing. And that that's sort of what happens. And then the internet comes comes along and it speeds everything up. So a band like Fugazi was popular for decades and they were cool for decades. And so they, they never lost fans at the bottom. But now everybody, a kid in London, a kid in New York, a kid in Omaha, they're all... No, it's not even Pitchfork anymore. It's blogs or whatever like yours. They're all paying attention. And what's cool is cool everywhere at the same time. And then it's over. After six months, it's gone. There's no longevity anymore. So things will just burst out, be great, and then gone. Um, Why so, is that? This is the rapid way we consume, I think. You know, I mean, uh, I'm sure people could give better theses on this, but my idea is that people are just... Uh, I apologize for my voice, by the way. I've had surgery recently. I don't normally sound like a Tom Waits wannabe. <laughs> um, but uh, you'll have to deal with it at the moment. But uh, the we voraciously eat up culture, and we're all into what's new. And this idea of new, uh, you can stop me from pontificating too much, used to be more of a victim of New York. So when I moved here, even before that, a band would be cool for six months in New York. And then you would have to get signed or else it's all over because there's constantly a new bunch of young kids in New York. They bust them in from the Midwest every six months. Um, and they don't want to be into what was cool six months ago. They want to be like, you're in the yeah, yeah, yeahs? Fuck yeah. They're the coolest band in the world in New York City for six months. And then if they don't get signed, they're yesterday's papers. Nobody cares. And I have bands of friends of mine uh, do you remember a band called Abigail Warchild? No. They're great. Wonderful. Everybody's darling. Getting talked to, getting talked up. And I was like, guys, you got to sign in six months or else no one will care. And it just kind of petered off. Um, and that's sort of the animal of New York. Well, now that idea is everywhere. That idea is everywhere. You have to get the ball rolling. You're on everyone's lips. Make it happen quick or it's over. I also um, think it's the... it's. Maybe because I'm older and you're older, it's the the physical thing. Like I don't have the physical booklet to look through. I don't have the the I'm not staring at the zine. Yeah, I'm looking artifact. at a screen, I'm looking at it for five seconds, cool, they have a show, cool. Next I don't have like a a more of a personal connection. Maybe someone younger does and that's how they do it, but I don't I don't connect yeah. with bands as easy. I I don't know. I mean with anything, even. Yeah, because things Not are distrustful on the internet, right? Like, I mean, you know, you have your Facebook friends, I guess, which can recommend a certain thing to you, but you know what it's like when, you know, we all have a friend, like, oh, my friend Mike, if he says something's good, you got to get it, you know? Um, I had friends that, like, my friend Jeff was the guy who waited through all the electronic music for me. So he would listen to so much electronic music, and then he would give me, like, every year, five records. And I'd be like, awesome, you waited through all the shit. And I would wade through all the emo, metal, hardcore stuff and be yeah. like, you're going to really like this, you know? Because <laughs> this other stuff, it's not going to be your thing. You know, I had to listen to 20 records to find that one good one. Um, you know, like, forget about all that crap. Here's Cursive, the ugly organ. You're going to dig it. Um, and that's, you know, we had friends that do that. Now, I don't know, to be honest. Well, one, I don't know because I'm not involved. Two, I don't need to know because... I'm, uh, I'm an adult in my 40s with kids and a mortgage. So, 
uh, you know, it comes across when I have time to listen to music. It'll be wonderful. And uh, I find things so late now. And that's fine. I I don't mind. But it is a recommendation. If I yeah. hit you up and say, Joe, you got to hear this yeah, record. This is great. This is the new, you know, XYZ. refused. Yeah, you, you got to hear this thing. Blah, it's going to be awesome. Then I'll check it out. Yeah. But, it's but not, I think everyone's looking for that. Yeah. But I'll be into it more. two years after everybody else's. Yeah. Fine. Um, I, mean, I guess Garrison had an interesting track. And I wanted to get your take on it because I feel like sure. Revelation, you know, had a super rad run, you know, for, as a label. They're still around, you know. But I think there were some limitations from them, you know, just on <laughs> what they could do. Yeah. And the stigma. I worked at Equal Vision Records. Yeah. I sent indie rock records out and people were like, this doesn't sound like Bane. You know, right. I'm like, I know it's not it's not all we do. We don't just do 10 yard fight and Bane records. You know, Revelation kind of had that where you guys were a different sound, even though you were connected and had pieces of it. There were a lot of bands yeah. at that time. I was doing Street Team when you guys were starting out for Rev. And I mm -hmm. just remember getting, you know, all the, you know, if it was flyers and posters and things to help. Um, that time period, that late 90s was super fun, I think. A lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And then from the, you know, kind of into the 2000s, it was sort of that same... It kind of, I don't know what I, I'm saying that it, it, it wavered. Yeah. Well, I what think people were into. It's always like that to a degree. I think, you know, some things hit and stick and some things don't. Um, when we, when Garrison started out, we were a band for, which was also a byproduct of Worcester. We were a band for the Canvas Patch Kids, which I adore and love. You know, the kids with the, the Asuk and the, you know, they were spending their weekends doing food, not bombs and going to shows and I fucking love that scene um, because the music is dissonant and it's cool. I think those kids are, generally speaking, at least back then, true music fans. There was the Collective Go Go in Worcester. There was the Space in Worcester, Food Not Bombs. And that was the sort of scene that I ident identified with most. And it was, it was a community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then we got signed to Rev. And what happened was, because we'd had experience with other bands... Uh, Ed and I were incredibly industrious. So the summer of 1998, we recorded a demo with Kurt, uh, three songs in his basement. Before we played our first show, we had a tour booked wow. down the East Coast. We made 200 demo tapes. I sent them out with a cover letter. The cover letter just said, Garrison is a four-piece rock band from Boston. These are the touring dates. Here's a demo of three songs recorded by Kurt Ballou. Please get in touch. And it had the tour dates at the bottom. I sent that to... Revelation, Equal Vision, Drive Through, Crank, everybody I could think of. And anything, just go through a zine yeah. and then send it out. All, all the addresses are in there. Yeah, we went and did our tour. <laughs> and at the end of our tour, we thought, you know, maybe we'd be lucky enough. You know, we went down, played with Lazy Cane in Virginia. We played with uh, a guy from Burn Collector at a fun band. Was it Burn Collector? Al. We played with them and Carbro. Played a... Uh, punk rock barbecue uh, and we came back thinking maybe somebody will put a 7 inch out for us and we got back Revelation Records had called their intern heard the demo tape passed it along they thought hey we could sell this got in touch with us we got signed uh, after about 3 months of negotiations um, I wanted to put out the demo before we got signed for two reasons one I thought it was good enough to put out we'd sold you know, about 600 demo tapes up and down the coast and two I wanted the indie credit putting out something on an indie label in Boston before Revelation Records because I thought 
people are going to think we're sellouts. But Ed and I had paid our dues for years putting on shows, and I did sound at space, and so I kind of felt a little entitled to this. I was like, yeah, I fucking deserve to be on yeah. a good, good label. So Revelation signed us. They put out an EP, um, which we recorded with Brian McTernan. Now, Brian was also instrumental in helping get us signed because Brian was a scout for F. So Brian basically had to deal with them. So he recorded demo, further on demos with them, sort of for, for, they paid him to do it. Um, you know, and he got a kickback from it, I'm sure. They heard the demos that he did and said, okay, we want to do this. So then we recorded our first EP with him. And at this point, because we were technically a rev band, even before they announced us, you know, Game Face would come through and we'd play with them. And, you know, we were getting nice shows. Um, and then he did the EP and we got out very quickly. That EP did, you know, right out of the gate, I think it sold 6,000 the first week, which we thought was amazing. I don't really know what it's like, what the barometer was. But uh, then we did A Mile in Cold Water with Kurt. We went back with Kurt because Brian, Brian is pretty busy. And we hadn't had the greatest experience working with him. Um, the rhythm section didn't get along with him too well. Um, Ed and I loved him. He was great. But I think the rhythm section was a little bit difficult at the time. Um, you know, because they were, well, for whatever reason, they just didn't get along. It doesn't really matter. Um, so we went back and recorded with Kurt. When we went back and made a Mile in Cold Water, it's a more obtuse album. It's less catchy. Uh, it's rougher around the edges. To be honest with you, Kurt wasn't as good as he is now. He's amazing now. We weren't that good a band as we are, as we later became. Um, so the material was more, uh, you know, it was a grower of a record. Revelation liked it, put it out, um, and it didn't stick. We had two singers in the band. Um, right around this time, or not too long after, bands like My Cancomal Romance, Thursday, started getting signed. Now around this time we'd done, then, you know, we'd done some touring. We did Mile and Cold, I'm not sorry, Be a Criminal with Jay Robbins, which I loved much better, big, you know, we'd really done our homework, woodshedded, became a better band. Jay, working with Jay makes you better. Um, put out the record. Revelation got bored. They didn't put a lot of money behind it. Didn't get a bad review. The, you know, the album was really good and it didn't get a bad review. I was very proud of it. Rev didn't know what to do with it. Um, the name of the band wasn't on the cover. They hated that. We had two singers instead of one. They hated that. Um, we didn't want to call ourselves emo. They hated that. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, and I, 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 you'll, you'll have to stop me if I keep, because I could go on and on and on. Um, Revelation only really existed as a label in the late 90s to sell their back catalog. They stopped putting out records for a year or two in the mid-90s and realized that their back catalog slowed. So for every In My Eyes they put out, they sold more Gorilla Biscuits. For every garrison they put out, they sell more Texas. The reason we became a pawn in their sales scheme. That sucks to feel as an artist. Um, they were only going to put so much money behind us, you know. If it hit, if it was an Elliot and it hit, and started doing, you know, thirty thousand records, forty thousand records, they'd put more money behind it. But if it was a garrison, it was only doing ten, fifteen thousand. They weren't so concerned. We were just a pawn to sell more Texas, more Sensefield, which they sold shitloads of um that really started to rub me the wrong way i had a falling out with jordan and at the same time we started to see bands 
like My Chemical Romance, like Thursday, get signed to majors. And they're contemporaries of ours, peers, and we start to get jealous. Why aren't we on a major label? Um, natural tendency. Now, in retrospect, I know perfectly why we're not on a major label. We didn't have an adorable singer. We weren't that showy. Our music wasn't that accessible. It makes perfect sense to me now, but at the time, I was bitter. Um, so I wanted to get off Revelation very quickly. So we agreed to do two EPs. I called Jordan and said, Look, this isn't a fit. You're not selling a lot of Garrison Records. We're not selling a lot of Garrison Records. We would like to leave. Out of spite, he released the final EP. Uh, I was like, look, you know you're not going to put money behind it. You're going to lose money on this. You're just doing this out of spite. And he basically said, yeah. So wow. that sucked too. Um, so we put out the model, which was with Vic Martin, uh, Simba Records, Simba, yeah, in the UK, and Iodine Records out of Boston, Casey. That record was the best record I felt we ever did. I love that record. You know, it was put out on a small label, not a lot of fanfare, but it was ours. And at that point, we'd started touring the UK a lot. So we were doing shows with a hundred reasons. We were always more successful in Europe um, and the UK than we ever were in the States. The States were one of those bands that had, you know, we'd sell a lot of records, but we had like 20 kids in every city that liked us. There was no city that had 200 kids that liked us. So after endless, you know, touring, being discouraged, we stopped touring the States, only toured Europe, played Boston, New York. That was it. Really? Yeah. And then the band dissolved in 2003. I joined Instruction, Hardy's band, who were on Geffen, and things changed. The One of my few memories, well, I have actually a lot of memories of Tower because yeah. I worked across the street at TBT, uh, um, and Tower was right there on 4th. Yeah, of course. One of, course. of my memories is going in there and buying the Instruction CD. Oh, wow. Um, You're one of seven people that did yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> Artie joked about that, too. Yeah. Um, so then from, I guess from that... From that that world of Rev not caring, having all those, ba you know, putting out a record you wanted to, that feeling of, okay, what am I going to do next, right? And then yeah. having, you know, having instruction, being on a major, having that second push, yeah. that must have felt good. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I mean, well, what happened was it made me, I instantly became distrustful of any record label other than somebody making it out of their basement and putting it out. So the, I was always treated well by Espo. Iodine, uh, Simba, um, those were wonderful. Uh, later on, Arctic Rodeo in Germany. Mm -hmm. But I became very distrustful of the you know the corporate entity, uh, be it Revelation or anybody else bigger. Um, so I joined. So what happened was I moved down here, still in Garrison, in a one. Hardy was a good friend and contemporary because Garrison and Heretype Eleven used to play together all the time. I loved Instruction. We toured with them in the UK with 100 Reasons. Huge fan. Um, <clears throat> they were making their record with Bob Ezrin. And, you know, uh, Tom was a bit of a wild card. And they felt like they might need a replacement for him. But they didn't want to show weakness to the label before they put out their record and change their lineup, understandably. So Bob Ezrin had the idea, look, there's shitloads of backing vocals on your record. Nobody in your band sings other than you, Artie. Get Joe in. Adam is a member. If Tom can't do it for whatever, Joe's already in the band. You just have him take over. And it's not like you're exchanging somebody. You've already somebody's That's part of the family. Idea. Bob's a smart guy on many <laughs> levels. So I joined during the mixing of the record. Oh. I don't play a note on that album. 
But I got to hang out with Bob Ezrin and Andy Wallace and watch them mix a record, which was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I think The Wall was the first album I bought that wasn't, you know, spoon-fed to me, that wasn't Bon Jovi or Def Leppard. So Bob Ezrin is a hero of mine. Um, and to be able to talk to him and, and mix a record and watch him do his work was the pinnacle of my musical career, uh, for sure. So then I joined that band, and we started touring with all big radio rock bands, you know, uh, Lincoln Park, Snoop Dogg, Corn, Puddle of Mud, Papa Roach, the whole thing. Um, now I didn't, I never got too burned on that band when they got dropped because we had a fun couple of years. I got paid to make music, but I never got any smoke blown up my ass, and it was never my brainchild to begin with. I never sat in a room like Artie did, and had Jimmy Iovine dancing around the room saying, "We've signed the new U2." I never had to deal with that. Um, they got the red carpet rolled out for them, the whole thing, and before they got signed, everybody loved them. They were a wonderful band. I joined, and I was like, oh, wow, these people, these corporate people suck. I can tell, because I'd, I'd had my interactions already. I was like, don't trust any of these people. And, uh, you know, we went and did our fun for two years, and then we got dropped. I think we got dropped the same day. Fifty other bands got dropped from Geffen. Um... Surprisingly, I think Beck was on the chopping block and he didn't get dropped. And that was a shock. Wow. And we're like, oh, well, good for him. Everyone else got dropped. <laughs> so you got all these bands looking for labels. Then it becomes Fires, a.k.a. Godfire's Man. Um, Bill McGathy, our management, ends up paying for our first record by having Atlantic pay for demos here and Universal pay for demos over here. And we do a record and then another. But, uh, then we were like a fun indie band. Were you doing other odd jobs, the same thing? Well, you were? the only time I have ever made money as a musician was instruction. I actually made more money than the band members because I was a hired gun. So because I wasn't part of the contract, I was like, you know, like a sound guy yeah. or a roadie. So uh, I got $800 a month when we weren't on tour and I think 1500 when we were. Wow. Yeah. So that was... That's a big money. That was I was rich as far as I was concerned. <laughs> well, I didn't have a my rent here was cheap as shit, so it was fine, and I didn't have to pay for drinks most places because I hung out with Artie um, <laughs> and uh, spent a lot of time at Little Frankie's. That was fun. That was, those were fun days. But uh, then when we got dropped, I was doing uh, back doing any odd, odd job at front desk at a yoga studio where I met my wife, uh, um, opening shift at a gym, restaurant work. Started working at a wine shop, um, got an education in wine. So back in, you know, 2011, I opened my own shop um, because I knew a lot then. But uh, by 2011, music had died down for me. Now, throughout all this, I was still doing, from 2004, <clears throat> 2012, I was doing Gay for Johnny Depp as well. Yeah. Um, Tell people about that one. Gay for Johnny Depp was a joke on the Boston hardcore music scene. It was originally instrumental, and I always hated how everybody loved those bands, and they were, had distrust for the emo rock bands, and I thought, writing songs with a chorus is really hard. Writing dissonant spaz music is, music is really easy, because there's no rules. So I, would, I could write that stuff in my sleep, because I grew up listening to Ass Factor 4 and The Swing Kids and Universal of Order of Armageddon and I was like, this shit is so easy. So I wrote that music with my friends, 
Jeff uh, and Lyndon, who I lived with, they actually had never listened to that kind of music at all. Really? Yeah. I just said, here's the song for them. Play. <laughs> and they love the touch and go stuff. So they were like, cool. And they've that fits. Along. Yeah. And then Artie, you know, in between, because we hung out a lot, I was like, I'll sing on it. I was like, great. So he loved that. He grew up listening to Born Against and all that really noisy stuff. So he was a perfect fit. He had to do it under a pseudonym. So, because he couldn't okay, contractually. So yeah, so he was Marty Leopard. So we all had stage names. Yours was Sid Jagger. Sid right? Jagger, yeah. And then we pretty much, other than playing, first show we ever played was at Pianos, because somebody canceled. Uh, we drank about two cases of beer before we went on. Hardy. <laughs> Already, after 20 minutes set, ended the show in his boxer shorts, doing most of the show with a sock puppet, uh, cleared the room, and we never got invited back to play. Oh, that's weird. So that was our first show. <laughs> so that was a good start. And then we started playing the UK. The UK loved it. ended up, we had three record labels in the UK, constantly toward the UK. Only the UK would play New York for fun to nobody, too drunk, <laughs> then go back and play the UK. Um, and that was really fun. And that was just a hoot. Got lots of good press. Lots of good shows, festivals. That was just... And because we made fun of everything, you know, the press ate it up. Yeah. The uh, Do you remember the first time you heard the word emo? First time I heard the word emo was attached to Hoover. Not Rites of Spring. Because I didn't hear it attached to Fugazi. Fugazi were just their own thing. They were just Fugazi. And they were like the Bible. Um, and I think emo was attached to Sunny Day Real Estate... And Hoover, which I thought, well, then I just realized that emo only really means kids who were from a scene or used to make hardcore that got better at their instruments that wanted to play rock music. And that's all it is. It's kids trying to play rock music that no longer want to play anymore because they're no longer kids. Um, and then very quickly, by the time, in my mind, it was a dirty word by 2000, by, by 1996. Emo was just like, what a meaningless term. Um, and so we just wanted to avoid it at all costs. In retrospect, we probably would have done better had we embraced it. But we just thought it was a nothing term and, you know, we wanted to... Why does it have that stigma? Are. Is it because of the tough guy, hardcore connection? No, it's just, it's meaningless. It's like, alternative meant nothing after 1990. You know, I mean, I tell people I used to smoke pot back when it was alternative. You know, it's like... What a no, this is a nothing standpoint. You know, it means it's a term. It's a marketing term. It becomes marketing. You know, and then, you know, you see kids buying shit at Hot Topic. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you see something that you put a lot of meaning into, co-opted in, in a mall, you feel used. You know, you feel like you have been chewed up and spat out to make money. And you feel meaningless behind it. There's nothing wrong with kids finding music in a mall. If you're 14 and you found Take Mac Sunday at a Hot Topic, great. It's a. Uh, but that's as, that's as deep as they're gonna go. No, that's not. No, no. Artie and I used to always call these bands gateway drugs. Not every fan is gonna go. The not every I fan. Say that. The reason I say that yeah. is, or I saw Take Mac Sunday at Take Take Taste of Chaos. Yeah. People were on their phones for every new song they played, other than the four songs from their hit record. They yeah. put their phones down, stood up, and started singing along. If it wasn't one of those songs, back on their phone, swiping through Instagram. Well, what year was that? 
this last year. Okay, so so I'm just saying like that, but that fan ten years later is a fan of a song, right? But that album. fan now, I mean, Taking Back Sunday, you know, but they're, they're, they're only into that one record, not during the early oddies. So, so I'll tell you, give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Instruction, we're out with Helmet, my favorite band ever, other than Jimmy World. Their first reunion tour, we were so chuffed. We were like. We wanted, they basically, our management said, do you want to do a week with Taking Back Sunday or three weeks with Helmet? <laughs> <clears throat> we made the incredibly wise decision to tour with Helmet. <clears throat> We're the only band, you can ask Ed this, the only band to ever refuse a, sh- a slot to open for Taking Back Sunday. Now, in, I want to say, Detroit, we played the same town at the same time. We pl- opened for Helmet. We ran over to see Taking Back Sunday. We had friends in opening bands, Nobody bands. Bands like it's nobody had ever heard of. They had opened for them and they sold a thousand copies of their record that night. And we were there crying because we just opened for Helmet and sold two records. <laughs> so we're like, at that time, around 2004, 2005, any band that opened for Tang Back Sunday would sell anywhere from 100 to 500 records and t-shirts. They would kill it because their fan base at that time lapped anything up and they were tastemakers. So if Tang Back Sunday said, this band's cool, they're opening for us, the kid said, yes, you're cool, I'm going to buy that. So at that time, they were a gateway drug. I just thought it was fleeting. Like it yeah, might have been a year, is. it might have been six, it's not this sort of longer yeah, but, term. Yeah, Jane's Addiction was, was, Jane's Addiction's, you know, I saw Lush open for Jane's Addiction in 1990, 91. I loved it because of that. You know, I don't care who opens for Jane's Addiction now. You know, if I, because I'm older and they're no longer vital. They were vital for a three-year span. They were the band and any band in that open form people would pay attention to. Same thing with Taking Back Sunday. But that band, that band, I think, gets upset because they're thinking, we have all these fans. They're at the show. All they want to hear is the one record. Who gets upset? The band. Oh, Taking Back Sunday? Well, that's reality. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, that's reality for anybody. I mean, you know, people, that happens for huge bands. You know, people, <laughs> Modern English played, for example, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They opened with Melt, Away, Melt With You. They closed with Melt With You because nobody cares about anything else. That, that's just reality. Um, you know, that's why bands save their big hit for the encore because the people wait around for it. You know, I'm sure Taking Back Sunday plays... Uh, What's their big hit? Cute without the E. No, no. They had a song. Make Damn Sure. Make Damn Sure. That's a, such a good song. That is a great song. They must play that on the encore or last because that's what keeps kids around. Um, and so they should. You know, I mean, I'm sure Helmet plays some of the songs off Meantime or Betty at the end. Keep kids, you know, that's just reality. And, yeah, and they're, maybe they're upset about it, but they're still lucky they're selling out places. Oh, so for sure. they're... they're I'm just saying they think yeah. like the we have a new record out. Like again, that's always the thing. But I think that time period, there's there were so many people into the bands. There was millions of people watching them on top forty radio, listening right. to MTV, all those things. And right. then it, it it literally dissolved into just give me that one song. Give me the percentage of people that go to a Radiohead concert that aren't waiting to see something from OK Computer or Creep. No, totally. They don't care. It doesn't matter how big you are. It's just reality. You know, they just want the hits. Nobody goes to see Bjork now to hear the new record. You don't think? No. I mean, 
Small percentage, right? Maybe a, maybe fifteen percent of the crowd. <laughs> maybe people go to Bjork. They're like, "Fuck, we got Bjork. Let's go see Army of Me." And it's so so quiet. That's gonna be awesome, you know? Or homogenic. They want to hear those tracks. They don't care. So there's yeah. a certain the, the the largest the larger percentage of people at a show are there for the hits, and there's ten percent that love the band through and through and want to hear everything. With most bands, now that you get those certain bands, those you know the Diamond in the Rough, Depeche Mode. Every single person in Depeche Mode is the biggest fan of Depeche Mode in the world. They know every song, every B-side, every song they play. They are crying. That's awesome. Those are few and far between. The Cure is like that. Um, you know, I would say there's probably a greater percentage of Radiohead fans that are like that, but at least half the fans are there for the hits. Just yeah. whatever album sold the most of, that's the you could just break out the statistics demographics of who's there to see what. How many people are here? How many are here to see King of Limbs? You know, ten people raise their hands. Um, that's just reality. That's just, you know, but that's not. I don't think that's anything to begrudge. So that's I think just, the other uh, part too was the internet hitting yeah at that time and it was like they were bands that i was into that had an email maybe them they didn't maybe they just had an address and oh, then yeah. all of a sudden it's myspace pages it's pure volume it's all these sort of like <laughs> metrics yeah Isn't and a lot fun? of the bands before that didn't do it sort of got lost it's fun to go look, go back and look at you know uh old uh old seven inches and be like they put their home phone number you know i remember booking a tour before cell phones rotary phones <laughs> yeah. that was fun you had to wait around you had to be like okay well what hour is it we got to call Shea Cafe and if we don't get the guy on this hour we're going to have to leave an answer on the answering machine because they're on the west coast um, I don't know there was something to that that was neat it's a lot easier now but with the internet because that that emo itself yeah. was right there yeah when it when it was pretty not necessarily mainstream but just it started to get faster yeah angel fire Geocities. Geocities. Yeah. Bands didn't have websites. No, kind of. <laughs> no, we used to think it was easy to put a MySpace on your band. You know, or friend. Well, people didn't do Friendster, but, yeah. you know, that we, you know, it's it's all that. When you're, when you're young and you're making music and you have no idea of the, the statistics and demographics of sales and how it works, you know, you, you just want, to do things on your own terms because your heroes did things on their own terms, right? Like everybody you love and you see documentaries on and read about, they were just ballsy and they did it on their own terms. You don't want to play ball. You don't want to, fuck, you don't, why would you put a MySpace? That's so lame. But the bands that play ball in some ways end up doing much better. Um, so you're saying that sort of thought of the independent, the, the community part, the bands that sort of were like, oh, if I do this. Yeah. Well, that's because because you're watching a scene that was a community become a marketing category, a demographic, because that's what happened. You know, I mean, the community became a demographic. So it became enough people got into something that they could now sell shirts and Urban Outfitters to it. Before that, nobody cares. You know, but once it becomes a demographic, then it behooves you to put your MySpace in your liner notes then it behooves you to be on Instagram all the time and show people you know I could care less couldn't care less about what my rock here is what Perry Farrell was having for breakfast or what he was having I don't want to see his vegan carrot cake I don't fucking care he was a mythic god 
that lived somewhere in L.A., constantly did drugs, was having sex, and making the best records ever. Why the fuck do I want to see what Gerard Way had for dinner? I don't care, but I am not the demographic for his fan base. His fan base want that. So wanted it. So it just that's, changed. Things changed. And that's cool. I mean, that's... I'm not... I'm not the marketing demographic. That's... It shouldn't be tailored to me. You know? What I want uh, is long gone. And I, was, I, like you, I want the artifact. There was something about the, the unknown. Yeah. The waiting. The... The, the physical and I, I'm actually fine with the physical I love not having CDs anymore like yeah. I love listening to everything you can send me a song in seconds and I'm listening to it versus waiting but that that the the I miss the waiting and I think yeah. it taught me a little bit about uh, patience which I have none now right. of uh, but that sort of like I'm waiting for this I now have to put my mind to do something else have you seen um, Simon Sinek's Sort of a diatribe about millennials no. in the workplace. You should watch it. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, yeah, I mean, on one level, so I'm up two minds. One mind is, it was better back then. It teaches patience. Um, I used to and still do when I have the time, although it's hard with twins, um, <laughs> sit in a room and listen to vinyl records. And it's even better with friends, especially musician friends. Um, Scott Patton from Pilots Counter and I, favorite thing to do sit down in a room in my living room, put on an old record like Drive Like Jehu, put on a new record like Joy Formidable, and just sit and listen. I love it. I love the artifact. I love reading liner notes. I love I love looking at old zines. Um, I love mail order. I love waiting for it. I used to buy records. The Hose Got Cable record, put out by Old Glory Records with the white owl on it. I bought it because Dan Colby first drummer for the explosion he used to play in a band called the never never um they were in hydrad he used to sell every town had one would sell records out of cardboard boxes at the shows yeah distro distro, distro kid uh, al barkley used to be there all the time i always remember i used to call the get up kids al barkley's favorite band because he always had them and uh, i think he put out a seven inch by them too and he'd go through the records and i would see that fucking hose got cable record all white with the owl and i was like i'm gonna get this i'm gonna get this third time i saw it i just bought it and I adore it. And I bought it because it looked cool. And I think kids miss that. Kids nowadays miss out on that artifact, on on going over the line notes to see who, who do they thank. Because if they thank that band, I've seen that. Oh, they know those guys? That's cool. They played shows with them? That's you awesome. You make connections. You make connections. I used to scour through zines and liner notes and make connections. I remember the first time I met Kurt Ballou. My old band, Stricken for Catherine, played with his old band, the Huguenots, at the space in Worcester to about 15 people. We started talking because he's like, I like your band. I'm like, I like your band. He's like, oh, you should see my band Converge. I'm like, cool. I saw them two weeks later. I thought there were going to be another 10 people there. There were like 300 people there. <laughs> I thought they sounded like the Mr. Bungle of metal. I was like, wow, yeah. this is cool. And then he and I used to write letters back and forth when I lived in New Hampshire. Writing tour, letters. Yeah. He sent me, he sent me a letter. Uh, of all the contact phone numbers of everybody down the West Coast. Wow. Uh, Dave Wutke, uh up in, I think he was in Vermont at the time, uh, numbers for Carbro, uh, numbers for uh, from Virginia. And I called people, and that's how I booked our first tour. Um, and those contacts were because of him um, and reading zines. 
And so, yeah. But I think of it the other way. Think if we had all this then, what would have happened? We'd be just as lazy. Yeah. We would be the, you know, I mean, I remember getting to places with an atlas and a map in a van before GPS. Um, it's not better, but it makes you work harder. And you work harder and you have skills. And you develop skills, skills like social skills with people. Um, you know, you've seen it a million times, I'm sure. Kids that are very verbose and amazing on the internet, you meet them in a show, they can't look you in the eye. They don't know how to talk. Um, they have no social skills. The only interaction is online. That's sad. Um, I'll send this link to you for the Simon Sinek thing. Yeah. He nails the problem with millennials. And it's not their fault. It's just how the cookie crumbled for the way they were raised with the internet and how it affected them um, and bad parenting techniques. But I don't think it's better. And so then my other way I think of it is every generation has its own thing. So there's some kids somewhere doing something I've never heard of. And it's fucking awesome. And maybe it's not, you know, it's not the same um, decoration that I'm used to. It's not canvas patches and homemade PAs and SGs through Marshall half stacks. It's something else. Maybe it's electronic. Uh, and I, it's I, cool. I, I felt that when I heard about the revival, the email revival in yeah. like 09. I hear, wait, there's labels that are doing these things? There's these bands that sound like Mineral or they're sounding like American football? or What? Yeah, it was great. it was unfathomable at that time to have a band sound like that. So to think a a, a sound had survived, and right. there were kids, and there were communities. There were you know there was the there was the Boston you know the right. top shelf records. There was a bunch of labels kind of had these little epicenters. And that same way you talked about Boston, mm-hmm. it slowly got bigger. You know things were getting signed, and those things were happening again. But it felt great in '09 to be like, oh wow, that's still that same thing is happening again. It's just, they're better at the internet. Yeah. <laughs> they're making amazing websites, the, the graphic design for their vine, whatever the thing right. was, it was almost like they had learned a bunch. Oh, and, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That. That's a great point. But the thing, the thing about that aesthetic, what's interesting is the thing that, the, the, the through line of the emo sound. And when I say emo, I don't mean the corporate pop punk disguised as emo. You're on the right podcast. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Um, it's kids that don't know how to write songs yet. It's bad songwriting. But I don't mean that in a bad way. It's it's the mistakes, the wonderful mistakes that happen when you don't know your craft well yet. There are garrison songs that I would never write in a million years because I'm a quote-unquote better songwriter now. But some of those happy mistakes are what make those know. records special. Um, all those, the, 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 that aesthetic is bad songwriting. Or not bad, it's, it's kids learning. learning their craft. And making wonderful mistakes, and you see, you see that in every art form, filmmaking. Um, that's why we always like, you know, bands. You know, the the cliche of oh man, the, the band's first seven inch was the best. Well, no, it wasn't the best. They've gotten better, but but it was that rawness of them trying to figure it out and knowing that. Well, they they had certain things that they liked, and certain hooks that they liked, and certain uh, skill sets, and they relied on those. And they did well with them, but they weren't so hot at editing, maybe. And they weren't so hot at transitioning. So, they, you know, that's why, like, a, a crutch for songwriting is all the music stops, and then the bass line plays another four chords, and then the rest of the band launches into it. That is hack songwriting at its best. It's or a, cheap. Or a movie quote. Yeah. Or a movie quote. Exactly. <laughs> but it works. 
And for certain things, it works really well. And that's the aesthetic we love. A lot of those records, you know, that, that everybody puts up on websites that we all look at, if I listen to now, I would never listen to. I would say, this is trash. But I listen to it now with nostalgia. And I listen to it with the ears that I listen to as a teenager and an early 20-something. And it just brings back nostalgia and memories of innocence, the innocence before I knew how to write a song well. And it's great. It's great. So you believe in the nostalgia thing? I actually hate that term. Well, it's inescapable. You can hate it, but it's real. <laughs> but it's like, why does that... I I never stopped listening to it. I feel the... Or even something new. Well, I have Tom, the same that's your, then you haven't matured as an adult. Really? No, not really. No, I'm serious. Like, I think the nostalgia term is like, you're only going to listen to it for that night, and then you're going to go back to what you were doing. Like, I'm not saying everyone well, has to work at the food co-op and, you know, uh, work on animal rights and, you know, be in a band all day. You have to have a life and move on. But I feel like it's just like, I'm going to take it for when I want. People want that term when they right. want it, and they push it away when they don't. It's that term specifically. That's what I mean. Well, you, you're a different animal because you've, you've not only been involved in the scene, you've also been involved in the industry at the same time with such... Uh, you've been really at your feet in both sides. You know, I think that, example, straight edge hardcore is for kids. It's music for kids. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, Rafi is music for kids. <laughs> it's music for my kids right now. Yeah. It, Sesame Street, it's great. But I don't want to listen to Sesame Street now unless it's for nostalgic purposes. Any adult that listens to straight edge hardcore is somewhat. Um, so it's mentally stagnated, I would think. Not mentally stagnated, they're, they're musically stagnated. Why would you still listen to a genre about staying true, music written for 15-year-olds that, that are lost and need help, that have bad relationships, don't, are socially inept? If you're in your 40s and you are still relating to those terms... But that's straight-edge hardcore. I'm talking about emo. I'm talking about bands. You're thinking well, like those bands not... You're thinking those records aren't... Those aren't a those haven't aged well. I don't think I, I don't think most of them are timeless. I think most of them are timely, and nostalgia is the only thing that makes them good anymore. Got it. I would say a few of them, a handful of them, are timeless. So, and we can go. We can. I would happily have a discussion with you about that. Um, Travis Jehu, although that's not an emo record, but that is a timeless piece of music. Um, so you're saying there's certain ones, I guess that's for everybody. This yeah. one, I can't listen to anymore. This yeah. one, I can. So everybody's Sunny Day Real those. Estate, who I generally find everything they've influenced to be odious. That first record is somewhat timeless. Um, it's beautiful. Quicksand, timeless. Most of the things that Quicksand influenced are horrible. Helmet, timeless. Most of the things they influenced, new metal, horrible. Um... There are certain... Is that just your age, though? Like a yeah. kid that got into a band that Helmet influenced, that was their apex? Yeah, sure, because because I, now we can go back further. I don't like Husker Du. The reason I don't like Husker Du is not because I don't respect them or how important they are. It's because I listened to everything that they influenced before I heard Husker Du. So to me, it sounded, eh, it's not enough. It's not, I've already heard that idea taken further. So that influenced me. So I can go back. It doesn't do it for me. I don't like Minor Threat. 
I actually finding it incredibly boring. Um, but I like what it influenced. So I guess it does both. Yeah. I don't listen. I've always said this. I own more Anita Franco records <laughs> than Black Flag, Minor Threat, The Descendants, Dag Nasty, Metallica combined. Like all those bands. I just, they don't do anything for me. Why does, is, is emo considered juvenile because of its heyday? Because I feel like it's never gotten a respect for what the records were. It was, there was always a snide comment. There's nothing wrong with saying that it's for juveniles. I'm not saying that it's juvenile music. I'm saying it's music for juveniles. <laughs> do you, so yeah, do you I see get the difference? It. Yeah, I get and it. I'm not insulting it. Um, in the same way that Sesame Street music is for kids. Uh, and it's wonderful music for kids. Uh, most emo is wonderful music for juveniles. Um, you need music. You need angsty music. Um, I have reached a point in my life where um, I don't cry so much that I want to cut my wrists. But see, that's, that's the mid-2000s emo. That's when goth was sort of taken from the UK. That's that whole thing. Yeah. My parents thought that. They're like, you do. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never thought that in my life. But they thought because that was the public thought of what that word meant. Right. I but never put. I never thought that those things were connected. But 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 okay. But the emo night that you host, I came there ready to play Hoover. I thought I was being poppy with no knife. All anybody wanted to hear was say anything. What? It depends on the time. Well, this is when I went. When I went there with you and Brian, and we did it, the people that went, they just wanted to hear the pop punk stuff. But that's just a DJ night. That's not I know, the public. But, but I'm not. So like, who is so, the public? Who is the public? I mean, who is well, the public so you're referring to? So here's how I lay out the emo night. Yeah. Eight o'clock. Yeah. 30 year olds are there. Yeah. They got to go home. They have kids. They have a job in New Jersey. They yeah. have to go. You play the minerals, the sunny days, the older stuff. Okay. 9 p.m. into 10, those guys leave. 20-somethings are starting to roll in. You move it into the late 90s, the Get Up Kids, the Promise Rings. And then as it gets later, you, you move along. You move you along. You go another five years after. Things, newfound glories, all the. And then at 1 a.m., everyone's shit faced. Yeah. And the 30 year olds that don't have a job are still there. So you can drop. They're usually in. the bartenders. Yeah. <laughs> Skirt, Skirty comes up and requests oh, something. Uh, but it's kind of has this sort of cycle yeah. where the, everyone's shit faced at the end. So you can kind of play both. Yeah. But you're 100% all right. I remember I was doing with Brian once and I remember having all these records ready to play. And we looked at the request sheet and I was like, holy crap, everything is from 2006. And I looked out yeah. And I went, you're right, because we'd been doing it for four years at that point. Yeah. We were like, oh, my God, you're right. Everyone's getting older and people are younger now coming because all yeah. pe- like, we're stupid. We're out on a t- at 2 a.m. on a Thursday night. Everyone else our age right. is home. We started to see that cycle. So I get that yeah. where there's a cycle of it. And there, right now, reunions, 10 years. Everything right now is 2007 reunions for 10 years. I don't even know who was, that, who was around them because, to be honest... So because I did the major label thing with with Artie, and um, your peers become who you play with. So even though it's not like I was influenced by Linkin Park, but that becomes the music. That's what you, that's the world you are in. Well, it's very interesting, actually, because the music, you start to see things differently because there's certain things relate and play at an arena when the bass is really loud and the kick drum's really loud and the vocals are really loud. It's a different style of music that makes people move than what makes people move in a basement. And so... 
learning how to play those rooms. It's different. And you learn how to, I can see why bands that do the arena circuit start writing really boring arena rock music because you see how that makes people move. Whereas in the early days, I felt like I was trying to make a crowd of 5,000 people. I was trying to give them the basement experience. And you were you needed to learn how to yeah. give them what what the, what, the what they wanted to a degree, and what I wanted was reaction. So maybe that's the maybe that's the root of all this. We're going back and forth of like knowing your audience, yeah. knowing where you are. Like again, we were looking at that sheet, being like, well, we better play those songs because everybody, ninety percent of the people yeah. out there, other than the drunk person at the David bar, Byrne talks about that in his book, uh, Sound of Music. He talks about oh, you're right. Certain rooms have a certain sound. Certain bands work in certain rooms, and that that applies to any certain businesses work in certain venues. You walk into now, I know this experience now from having opened a bar and opened a wine shop. You walk into a room and you get to go, this is a coffee shop. It really shouldn't be anything else. Or this is a wine shop. I shouldn't try and make this a bar because this is a wine shop. And the same thing goes with rooms. There's rooms where you're like, you know what would slay here? Metal. This would be great. Certain rooms you're like, this needs to be Robin. This needs to be Pop. This mm-hmm. needs to be Katy Perry. That's what's going to kill here. And I think that everything has this sort of resonance to it. Um um, and, and, and that's just my feeling. I think too, the other thing, funny part is, uh, there's a Facebook group, the nineties hardcore records. Yeah. And, um, since we're friends, I'll see your note or your comments and things yeah. on tons of records. Um, <laughs> what do you like about that? What do you like about people posting and you commenting on things? It's always nostalgia. a funny comment or <laughs> a snide thing. It's usually nostalgia. Well, it's, it's a couple things. One nostalgia B, uh, two, um, I like saying, hey, I played a show with that band. <laughs> that's how I used to describe my bands to people. I was like, my band is open for some bands that have opened for some really big bands. Um, uh, you know, because it was a very integral part of my life. It meant a lot. And so to see that there's 30 kids out there that remember a record or a show that you were at or that you were involved with or that you are a fan of, it's nice. It's a bit of camaraderie. It, because as we all get older... Uh, our social fabrics splinter and rejoin, and they rejoin with people because of different interests. So when you're younger, your interests are art and music and you against the world, you know? And when you're older, your interests are common interests. Hey, our kids are going to the same school. We live next door to each other. We work at the same company. They're not as meaningful. The, The links that you create with people in your youth are wonderful. And they last um, uh, sometimes for a lifetime. The touring that I did in Europe um, and the States over the course of my early and late 20s, are the, I met the people I would have been best friends with had I grown up in that town. I'm that fortunate. They're still my friends. I can call them now, 20 years later. I can be in Milan and call somebody for a cup of coffee. And they're there. And vice versa. They come here. I'm like, what are you doing? Let me show you around. You need a place to stay? You can stay at mine. Um, that is the benefit of those times. Um, and for me, that website, going to see those records, brings that back a little bit in a small way. And it's my, you know, my computer's on at work. So while I'm working and talking to people about wine and deliveries and shipments and salespeople, I occasionally look over and go, hey, <laughs> I love that record. And it's just a nice Your mind's moment. in another place. Your yeah. work, you're doing, you got your kids. Doing my things. thing. So if a little blip of, hey, I remember that. Yeah. And it's nostalgia. And it's not nostalgia because I think those were better times. They're not. These times are great. I love my life. I'm very happy with it. 
I don't wish for those times again. But it is nice to go down memory lane every once in a while and go, yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. It's nice to have a discussion like this with you. Talk about mutual things. I mean, that's why people name drop all the time. They name drop not because at this point I care that you think I'm cool. I just want to let you know I saw so-and-so there. Were you there too? Do we have that shared experience? Yeah. It's just saying, do we have that shared experience? It's not, I mean, I hope it wouldn't be. Which used to be just yeah. from a t-shirt. You could look at a t-shirt and be like, that guy was probably at the show last yeah. week. We're going to be friends. Yeah. I can talk to him. I bet they know what it's like to get beaten up. Bet they know what it's like to be ignored. Bet they've never been on a date. I can talk to that guy. I was in Exeter, UK. First show Garrison ever played in the UK. Ended up being an all-day show, 100 Reasons, uh, Dead Inside. Which people should check out 100 Reasons. They if, were wonderful. If they haven't. It's a kind of a, it was a UK. Yeah, they were only big in the UK, and they were huge in the UK. They were on TV, on the radio all the time. You know, um, Didn't really get out of the UK, but they were magical. Uh, anyways, um, I see this guy's hand, his arm in a merch table, and he's got lyrics to a God Machine song. Wow. Who were my favorite band of all time because they were the cross between The Cure and Quicksand. <laughs> and I saw him and I grabbed his arm and I just said, The God Machine. And he looked me in the eyes and said, Best band ever. And I hugged him. <laughs> he was uh, Simon Joyce. He's a guitar player for Kids Near Water. We're still friends. I love that. Like, he's uh, he stayed his, vice versa. He lives in Boston now. Married to one of my sort of high school friends. Uh, that's, that's cool. You know, it's... In the real world, it's six degrees of separation. In the music world, it's two degrees of separation. Everybody knows everybody. Standing long enough, you'll meet all your heroes, everybody you ever want to meet. They're, they're, they're easy, and they're touchable. It's nice. Yeah. I wanted to mention, too, that you, you talked about your voice earlier. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening? Um, what, how did you find out about this? And sort of... Uh, um, and how close... Because this sort of was escalated because you were like, I don't know if I'm going to speak again. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, Joe, you and I have to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, and I haven't learned sign language yet. Um, so what happened was, I'm 43. Um, I've had high cholesterol my whole life. So then I'm at a point where they're like, hey, you know, we should give you a statin for this. And while we're at it, we should do a routine check your heart. So I do a heart scan. Everything's fine. But I should go on a statin because I have high cholesterol. Easy. Cool. While they do the scan, they go, oh, by the way, there's a mass next to your heart that doesn't belong there. Um, endless testing for about three months. Come to find out I have a cancerous tumor located between my heart and my lung. We catch it very early. It hasn't attached to anything. Um, I am operated on by a robot that basically, they collapse my lung. Each one of those marks is an arm from a robot that goes straight to my heart. Wow. So around my rib cage, they remove the cancer uh, completely. They take it out. Shouldn't come back. Um, no chemo, no radiation. But in the process, there's a lot of things going around your heart. It's, it's called the mediastinum. My larynx nerve was in the way. So they pinched it, put it to the side. Thankfully, they didn't the have robot. to cut it. Yes. Um, if they cut it, I would have no voice. So they pinched it, so the left side of my larynx is paralyzed. It may come back. It may not come back. Um, I may sound like this. It may improve. There's procedures that can be done to improve it, but... For the time being, I sound like Tom Waits and Batman. So the nerve, the robot, it was it is it, it was in the way, and they didn't know, or no, it's just where it is. No, that we we knew before the surgery. They said this is a byproduct that may happen. Wow. So it's like, all right, well, get the cancer out. Yeah. Um, so they did, and hence, um, I sound like this. 
It's better than it was two months ago. I mean, two yeah. months ago, you were writing nothing. things on a piece of paper. Yeah, forget it. It was nothing. So it's better now. Um, it's somewhat audible. But it gets tired. It doesn't hurt at all. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, with this long conversation, how... No, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. The only thing is, like, you'll find me breathing like that. The problem is, is when one side of your larynx is paralyzed, it's now has become a medical lesson instead of emo, um, is you cannot control the rate with which air leaves your lungs. So when someone would hold a note, for example, when they sing, they can hold it for a minute or whatever. I can't do that. So as I talk, all the air is just going... So I'm constantly breathing to refill my lungs. Normally I'm fine. My lungs are fine. You know, that's just why it sounds like it does. Wow. Yeah. Were, and were you in like a, weren't you in, weren't you on, on holiday or something when that happened? Or there was... No, I had, I had booked, my wife is from Hawaii. Uh, her family's there. We go to Hawaii usually once Thank a you year. Thank you recommendations in Kauai. Of course, anytime. Um, <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. It's heaven on earth. And uh, we had the, we had this trip booked. And so they told me two days before I left, you've got cancer. Um, and I was like, can I still go? And they're like, yeah, it spreads pretty slow. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. Have fun. We'll remove it when you get back. So I went on two weeks of swimming and hiking and eating really well. And then I came home and had surgery. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of a... Not, that's fucked up. <laughs> Just be like, go yeah, have fun. fun. I don't know what I would have said. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was good. Very healthy. Yeah, everything's worked out. I mean, look, you know, I mean... I'm fine. I don't live in Syria. You know, I caught cancer before it attached to my heart or my lung. Like, I've been dodging bullets my whole life. I'm fine. This is nothing. Like, my, I can actually speak. It's going to come back better. If not, I can get an implant to improve it more. Cool. None of this is a big deal. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I'm glad. I just, it was interesting, you know, a few months ago being like, you yeah. didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, when I got in touch with you, I was like, hey, Tom, <laughs> this may be, uh, the last I speak. Well, it's great to hear. Oh, thanks. We'll see. Maybe <laughs> give it some time. I might start singing again. We'll are, see. You, do you, are, are you still doing, do you want to still do bands and music? Yeah, yeah. I had a freedom and the Judas Knife are still going in theory. Everybody mm-hmm. loves each other. We all still play. But the problem was I had a freedom. Uh, nobody was in the same. Oh, yeah. I had our freedom. Duh. I yeah. always make fun of Skirty. I always pretend that we don't have it on Spotify when he comes by, <laughs> even though it is. Good. Brian. Good. Usually, yeah, we don't find it. And he gets all upset. Awesome. Good. Yeah. Think that's but you're right. That, so my mistake. I hate our freedom. You're still doing it, correct? Yeah. I mean, we haven't got, we haven't played together for two years, but you know, we will. We have music written. It's just a. I need a voice, and b. As long as we're all in the same zip code, we can get out there and practice. Judas Knife is going to probably start playing, which is me and it's Drew Thomas from uh, Into Another, um, and Dave. He's in a band called Han, um, and this kid Justin Williams. He was in Gracer. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Rats, I totally yeah. remember Gracer. So um. We're going to get together hopefully in January. Starts playing instrumental until my voice gets better. Cool. Yeah. So for you... It's Music the, took a backseat because I, yeah. I had kids. It's uh, And it'll never be what it was. Because but, but you still want to do it. Yeah. I want to make music. I want to make records. I want to play shows. I just don't want to tour 10 months out of the year. I have no desire to do that. That does not sound fun. Is there anything else you want to do or you've thought about that you've felt that I really want to do this? Um, outside of music? Everything. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'd like to write a book. Um, I like to go hand gliding. Um, my wife and I have a standing date to uh, hike most of the active volcanoes in the world, so we, she and I have to get on that. But uh, other than that, I just want to watch my kids grow up. They're awesome. They're really fun. Um, 
So I want to educate Twins, them. right, you said? Yeah, one boy, one girl, one instant family. Done. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Twins are, uh, but a friend describe it. Said it's wonderful. We wouldn't have it any other way. And we wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> yeah, we didn't sleep for uh, 432 days. I counted. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. It was like the little prison wall where you have a little check mark. The sleep deprivation is the cheapest drug. <laughs> so I was high all the time. I highly recommend it. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thank you very much, Tom. <laughs>